0: First Timothy chapter two. We're in a series on the book of First Timothy, which is about how it, the life of the church is regulated according to God's will. And that's we're pre, I am preaching this sermon because our church is at a point where it is now planted. But now, as I've said for the past couple of weeks, we need to come to a place where we are established. And to be established means to be brought to a firm and stable basis. And the way we bring ourselves to a firm and stable basis is according to God's standards. And according to what he has regul- what He has given us in the word. And so if we're going to be a healthy church, if we're going to be useful to God, we're going to do it God's way and through God's mean and God's methods. And 1 Timothy tells you exactly how to organize a healthy church. There is context, and obviously there is a historical context of the passage. However, I do believe, and we do believe, that God has given this book to the church so it can be brought to a firm and stable basis. And so that's why we're preaching through First Timothy, I do think we're at the point now in our church where we can work towards these goals that are set forth in, forth in First Timothy. Now, last week we saw that be, becoming a Christian is going to bring you into a place of conflict with the world. Remember, it's not as if once you become a Christian, it is going to be a happy day all the time. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. The reason you're going to have tribulation in the world is because the world will be opposed to your values and your message as a Christian. And so you will be brought in to conflict with the world. And that's why church discipline is necessary, as we, as we saw last week Paul said, I have handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Because if the church is truly to be a colony of heaven on earth, which I think it is, if it's truly going to be that, it cannot be infiltrated with worldliness. It has to stand apart as salt and light. So we're in conflict and we we make sure that we maintain Christlikeness in the church and the truth of Christ in the church as well and that's why church discipline is necessary with that being said we don't exercise church discipline out of a wanton disregard and even hatred towards the person that we're exercising church discipline on. Church discipline should only ever be exercised in love for a person because we want the best for them and we want to see them restored. Right? And so it's, I have handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. I believe Paul means more than just say that'll teach them, but that truly they would come to a place where they Realize blasphemy and non blasphemy. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul uses the same language and says, I've handed over him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his soul may be saved. The destruction of the flesh being the fleshly, earthly, sinful part of us so that his soul may be saved. So the reason we practice church discipline is not only for the health and protection of the church, but for the good of the one who we're exercising discipline on. You with me on that? That idea brings us into what we're going to discuss today. If we're going to be a healthy church, we're, we need to be, or we need to bring ourselves into alignment fully with God's desire for the world. That's my point today, essentially. If we're going to be a healthy church, we need to bring ourselves into alignment with God's desire for the world. Now, I do think that this church is in alignment with God's desire for the world. And so what I'm preaching today is going to be a reminder. I preached to you by way of reminder today but it is very important that we hold fast to this because it's central in the life of a Christian, in the life of the church, and it's the purpose of mission. So, with that said, let's turn to First Timothy 2, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. 2, verse 1. First of all then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and who, who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Now, in this passage, Paul begins his instructions about church order. And he does so by urging the congregation in Ephesus, or Timothy, to um, pray for all people. That's the first business of church order. Prayer for all people. Including civil authorities like Caesar. Why is that appropriate to pray for all people, including civil authorities like Caesar, who may be directly opposed to the gospel message? Simply because, as Paul says, it is in line with God's desire for all people to be saved. It is in line with Christ's sacrifice as a ransom for all. And it is in line with Paul's own mission to take the gospel to the nations. So, what I'm again talking about today is being in alignment with God's will for the world, the Kingdom of God. Being in alignment. How can we be in alignment with God's will for the world? I have three ways that I want to give you today. First of all, from verses 1 through 2, we see that being in alignment with God's will for the world means seeking the good order of society and godliness in our homes. Good order in society and godliness in our homes. Now, Jesus is Lord was the gospel message. Jesus is Lord. What did that mean in the first century? Yes, it meant that Jesus is our master. Yes, Lord is, referred, is a reference to Yahweh as well but it also meant that Caesar is not Lord if Jesus is Lord Caesar is not Lord there were coins actually in the first century which says Caesar son of God so to say that Jesus is Lord and he is the son of God is also to say that Caesar is not Lord and he is not our master So if that's the message, how should we act towards Caesar? What should be our disposition towards Caesar? What should we do if Caesar is not our Lord? Well, the world will stand in opposition to our lives and our message, and so will Caesar. What should we do? That's given in verse 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and who are all all who are in high positions. What we should do with people who oppose our message and our values, who lift themselves up as Lord over Jesus Christ, is to pray for them, is to intercede for them, is to supplicate for them. I like that. That's an old word to to supplicate. It means to petition, to make requests for. So what you do with a hostile world, who we stand in opposition to, is we pray for them. We even make thanksgivings for them. You know why? Because God is still in control. And again and again, I see our nation constantly in a frenzy once some certain politician gets elected or not as if god was not in utter control of the situation there is no need to fear though the earth gives way the psalm says there's no need to fear it is under god's control it is in, it, it is according to his plan and so while we ought to be good citizens and vote rightly we should not be frenzied about certain politicians who disagree with us we pray for them we don't we do not desire their demise we pray for their salvation and for wisdom why because the ideal christian reality is not for us to be wide eyed revolutionaries. The ideal Christian position or disposition is not to be anti governmental revolutionaries, it's to be godly and dignified and to live peaceful and quiet lives. Paul says in the second part of verse two so we pray for kings and who are all who are in high positions that what that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. That's the ideal that we're called to. To be godly and dignified means that you're pious. It means that you're zealous. Godly, Eusebia, means... To be devout to the Lord. Dignified means you're worthy of respect. You're sober-minded the way you go through life. There, those two words really capture, I think, what God wants out of a man. Godly and dignified. Zealous and, and devout for the things of God and dignified, sober-minded and self-controlled. Living for God's glory. And peaceful and quiet lives. The Lord is not calling us to raise torches and burn down houses. He's not calling us to join rowdy riots. Peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So, what Paul is saying in verses 1 and 2, he's saying, Pray for the common grace of God to reign in the world. To sustain good order and morality in society. So that the church can carry her task out unhindered. Godly and dignified in every way. Now, with that being said, I want to say something else. Now, there are times when we will not be able to lead lead peaceful and quiet lives. And there are times when it would be inappropriate for us to merely try to be good citizens. Um, If the state bans prayer at some point, what we should do is defy them. And we should open our windows like Daniel. And we should pray to the Lord in defiance of ungodly tyranny. I love, the, I love the phrase in Acts 5.29 when they tell Peter to stop preaching Christ is the only way. Get with the program with the rest of everyone else. And what he says is, whether it is right in your eyes, to obey God or man, you decide. But we cannot help but preach what we have seen and heard. <laughs> I love that phrase. You decide whether it's right to obey God and man. If they illegalize churches in our country, what we do is we meet underground. You know, just like the church in China or Afghanistan. What if they make you deny Jesus as Lord at the threat of your job, your money, your family, and your life? Now, it's easy for me to stand up here and say this confidently in a suit on Sunday morning in front of people who agree with me. So, this is easy. But there are actually people out there for whom this is a reality. And they are no doubt braver and stronger than me in the faith. But what we should say in those kinds of situations is it has been granted unto us to suffer for his name. Just like Paul who rejoiced that he was counted worthy to suffer for Christ. I pray our country doesn't go in that direction. I don't think that's good. That's not the ideal. But the church and the world will conflict. And the world, world will oppose our message. And if you turn on a news podcast or the news today, or even if you've been on social media or talked to anyone... <laughs> You know that the world is against what God's desire is for the world. You know that. You see that in schools today. You see it in government. And so, it may come to a point where we need to defy the government. But... The ideal here that we're called to is to live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Not to be a wide-eyed revolutionary looking for trouble. There's a difference. The ideal is peace, but a sanctified defiance is necessary at times. And it may be in our lifetime. I don't know. I pray not. I always like this one um, sentence that I heard from a preacher. He said, If they require us to mix devotion to Christ with anything else, we we do what we don't want to do because of what we have to do. I think that's a good way to put it. We do what we do not want to do because of what we have to do we defy the government because we are required to obey Christ and in our defiance we pray for them and we pity them for the wrath that they are incurring upon themselves i think that's a good way to put it we pray for them because we want their best and we when they reject us and mock and malign us we don't say well I'm good I hope you die and go to hell that's not the heart of Christ we just like is this not the heart of Christ father forgive them for they know not what they do so we are called to live peaceful and quiet lives godly and dignified in every way not to be revolutionaries not to go looking for trouble everywhere to stand in opposition to Of the world with dignity and if they shut us down and if they require us to reject quite Christ then sanctified defiance is in order (coughs) that is honestly what I think Christians are called to today so check your own heart when it comes to people with whom you disagree who are in high positions how did it, how, don't answer this question, but ask yourself, how did it make you feel 25 minutes ago when we prayed, or told, whatever it was, we prayed for Joe Biden? A lot of, there's a lot of disagreement with him and his policies. If it was, well, why are we praying for him? This guy is one step away from being Satan himself you know or you could see him as a man made in the image of God who has gone astray who is lost who is following the course of this world in the prince of the power of the air and you pray for him because you want his good you follow me on that? So you stand in opposition to worldliness, but you want good for the world. Because after all, God loved the world that he, forgave, he gave his only son. It's very interesting. The word world in John always refers to hostile persons against Christ and the gospel. But God loved the world. This brings me to my next point. So, having said that we must seek good order in society and godliness in our homes, the second way I believe that we bring ourselves into alignment with God's will for the world is by seeking the salvation of souls. Why is it good and pleasing to God? In verse 3. He says this is good and it is pleasing to God our Savior. Who desires all people to be saved. Why is prayer for all people good and pleasing to God? Think that you don't have to answer me, but think for yourself looking at the text. So pray for all people, including kings and all who are in high positions. This is good And it is pleasing in the sight of God. Why is it good? He gives the answer. It is good and it is pleasing in the eyes of God, our Savior, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Three key words there I want to discuss for a minute. First of all, desires is the Greek word fellow. And it means... It expresses will or intent. It means you want something. We know what desire means in English. That's what it means in Greek. He desires. He wants something. This word is used in Matthew 20, 20 through 21, when the mother of Zebedee asks what I think is a great request from Jesus. But she says, it says, then the mother of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him something. And Jesus said to her, What do you, fellow? What do you desire? (coughs) And what she did was, she told him what she desires. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in the kingdom. So to desire something is to want something. It's to long for something. And God desires in this text, in verse 4, he is in a state of wanting or intending or willing something. What is the object of God's desire in verse 4? All people. Pantos anthropos. All, pantas is the scope. All. When you say, I wish all Americans would vote right in two years. What do you mean? I mean every American. So all is the scope. Pantas It means all, every. And God's desire has a scope for all. All what? All anthropos. All men. Or all people. All humanity. So the scope is all. The object is men. So God wants, desires... Men and all of them... What? What does he desire? To be saved. Sozo. To be rescued from sin... And given an eternal life. Not just, this flew in the face of Jewish people during the day who thought that God only wants the righteous. And what they meant by righteous were those who followed the strict observances of the rabbinic tradition. So think about Jesus' parable of, the, of the, um, the tax collector and the Pharisee praying and the tax collector who beat his breast. <clears throat> and even Paul was a great sinner. We saw in verse in chapter 1, verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and is deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. So he wants all men to be saved. God desires, he wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So how do we look at those who are of the world right now? I believe... The right way to look at the world is to attach your desires to God's desires for for those people. I heard someone interviewing pastors, and uh, when he interviews pastors, potential pastors, he says, look out the window. I lived in a, a city area, and there are inevitably people walking by the street, and he says, what do you see out there? and this man said he'd get two answers he'd get number 1 i see a person a sinner under the wrath of god who deserves damnation that is true then another kind of person is someone who say who someone who says i see a man made in the image of god whom he loves whom Christ died for And is calling to repent and believe. That is true. But the truth, what they would say, shows what is in their heart. And I've learned this slowly and slowly over the years because I'm a very slow thinker and my heart is very slow to bring myself into alignment with God's will. What God wants is the good. Of men. He wants people to stop following Satan and to start following God. He wants people to not be utterly destroyed, but to be utterly saved. When Paul was giving, I just was reading this this morning and I thought it was so to what we're saying today. When God sent Paul, here is how Paul reiterates what Christ said to him. He says, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God to receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those Who are sanctified in faith by me. That is God's desire. I believe. Now, if God desires all people to be saved, why aren't all people saved? Because you must repent and believe. You must appropriate the cross through faith. And so, God allows you to make, make the choice. He allows you to make the choice and to reject him or accept him. So God desires you to make the right choice. He calls you to repent, but he is not going he does not program you to do it. Now some of you are in agreement with what I'm saying and you see I'm just preaching the text and this is this is all very clear to you um, and you see, yes God desires all people to be saved I see that. Um, that that's what it seems like to me too others of you are feeling attention right now and are sort of uncomfortable with what I'm saying um, and I understand that Now I'm looking at another sheet of paper, which is very important for what I want to say. Um, But if I don't find it, I'll just try to remember what I wanted to say. Um, Well, I don't have it, so I'm just going to have to tell you some things I think. Um, Some of you are feeling attention. And the reason you're feeling attention is not because you don't desire people to be saved. It's because you're asking yourself, well, how does this fit with passages that teach about election and predestination? Now, I think what I want to do here is just tell you. Passages. I want to give you passages that talk about God's desiring for all people to be saved. And then I also want to give you passages that talk about the fact that God has elected some to be saved. And then I want to bring that together for a minute. So this is a theological interlude. Um, does God desire all men to be saved? If you ask me, I say yes. He desires all men to be saved. In our text today, I think that's the clear interpretation of the passage. Verse 3, the reason it's good to pray for people is because it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he goes on in verse 6 and says that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. It doesn't say as a ransom for some. He wants all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Then there are other passages. There are other passages, such as in 2 Peter, which says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I'm going to try to pull up my personal notes um, and read you just a few other passages. Note-taking is very important because you learn things as you read the Bible. You learn things as you read books. And if you can categorize your thoughts on notes, I use a OneNote, then you have them to refer to and they become part of your knowledge. But if you don't capture things down and write them out and clarify your thoughts, it's going to turn into a fog and then you're going to lose it. Um... So God is not willing that any should perish. Um, consider Acts seventeen twenty six, which says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having predetermined their allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. For what reason? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. The passage we read today is God our Savior desires all to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Second Peter 3.9 says God is not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. First Timothy 4.10 says For this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people especially those who believe. Um, think about those passages for a moment, and ask yourself, what is the what is the scripture saying? Is it really saying that God desires all people to be saved or not? I think, honestly, looking at those passages, there are people that have offered interpretations such as God. Well, it's all God wants all kinds of people to be saved all groups of people to be saved they could be right and I could be wrong I want to just put that out there but I'm not convinced I'm just not it's not convincing to me when I look at those passages um, and they offer their interpretation it's just not what the passage says now when it comes to women in ministry when it comes to homosexuality we take a very clear What manner of interpretation of scripture. We don't waffle around with things like that. So if we applied. The exegetical. Method. Of certain persons. And took it. uh, Certain persons who say that God does not want all people to be saved. And applied it to other passages. Ethical. Or ecclesiological. There's going to be great problems. Problems. And I think that's kind of playing fast and loose with the text. If I'm wrong, convince me I'm wrong. Because I very well could be. But this is just what I believe right now. And I'm trying to offer you something to think about. So I think, I, I see many, many passages which talk about God's desire for all people to be saved. Not only God's desire to be all people to be saved, but Christ dying for all people. For as one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, so that death came up upon all men for all his sinned. and so one act of righteousness leads to life for all men scripture says so let me put that to the side I do believe that God desires all people to be saved however if you're a kind of person who's in agreement with what I just said you say yes that, that makes sense I want you to do business with other passages as well Acts 13.48 is one of these and it tells us that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed 1 Peter 1 verse 2 says that speaks of Christians as elect according to the foreknowledge of God Romans eleven seven 7 says, The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Those are just some passages. Romans 9 is another passage about election. So I see, I see passages which clearly teach that God desires all people to be saved, and I see passages that clearly teach that God has elected certain persons to be saved. Those, that's my honest exegesis of the texts themselves. Now, what I've seen in theological circles and in churches is my text can beat up your text. That's what I see. And gosh, that's just not the way to do theology. That's just not the way to do it. It's not. But this passage says this even stronger than that passage. You know? Yeah, I know that, but this, one's, this one also. And, uh, it's, we're just flinging different passages at one another, and that's not the way to do theology. What I would like to do is to ask, how can these two truths cohere at the same time? That's how you do theology. This is how the best theology was done. By the early church fathers... Think of the Trinity, for example. Well, there are passages that say the Father is God. There are passages that say the Son is God. So who's God then? Who? Well, this one really says that God is the Father, and this one really says that Jesus is. So then, if you applied, again, Arminian and Calvinist alike, if you took their angular hermeneutic, and you put them in the first century, they would never have come up with the Trinity. Simple as that. They didn't come up with it, but they would never have realized the Trinity. The Trinity is a matter of synthesizing the data of Scripture. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. They all work as God together. Um, so I think the best theology faithfully and carefully interprets texts and then attempts to synthesize those texts in a way that they cohere fully at the same time. That's the way theology is done. I would love it if our church moved in that direction. For me, for my part, I would rather have an accurate interpretation of passages rather rather than a complete theological system with dubious interpretations of many passages. I'd rather have that. I'd rather have an accurate exegesis of Scripture and an incomplete theological system than a... Dubious interpretation of scripture. With a complete theological system. So. Please consider that. Please consider that. I believe that God has elected. Those who will be saved. Since the foundations of the earth. I also believe. That God desires all men to be saved. Period. Now. How does that make sense? How do you fit that together? That's a theological question. And you are invited out to Wednesday night Bible study, systematic theology class, coming up in a few months, when we will discuss this very topic. But I am not about to discuss predestination and election here, because that's going to get us into the weeds. I do have an idea. I do have a, a belief on that, which I hold lightly. But it's a belief that brings the two truths together coherently now um, so I want to say that God desires all people to be saved yet in his plan only certain people are saved it happens according to plan so for example did he want Eve to take the fruit and eat it no no Was it part of his plan? Yes. He he said, do not eat the fruit. He specifically said, you shall not eat the fruit. Now, if words mean anything, and they tell you about someone's mind, it tells us that God did not want Eve to eat the fruit. Was it part of his plan? Yes. Did he want the Pharisees to reject him, to reject Christ? and to blaspheme the Son of God. No. Was it part of his plan? Yes. In fact, in Acts 4, 28, Peter says that they had done everything that your hand had predestined to take place. So, there's that. That's my theological interlude. I do believe God desires all people to be saved. I do believe there are strong passages for that, however at the same time you really need to do business with passages on election and predestination. The question is not which text can beat up the other text. the question is how do we bring these two together at the same time? How do they cohere at the same time? And my suspicion is that the two dominant theological systems in our country today do not fully account for the data of scripture. More on that if you're interested. If I'm wrong, prove me wrong. But prove me wrong by pointing to the passages I pointed out today and give me a firm exegesis. And I would really appreciate that. If, I, if, if you believe what, what I am saying is true, think about these things, won't you? Meditate on those. And I think that will spare us from a lot of needless um, divisions. I need to move on. I would love to stay here. But let me get to point three. Point three is, and this is simple, being in alignment with God's will for the world means also holding Christ out as the only hope for the world. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony at the proper time. What was the Shema? The Lord our God is one. There is one God. But the Christian addition to the Shema is there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. A mediator was somebody who stood in between. I've said this before. We do not linger on God talk in this church. When we were at the street fair and handing out tracts, we did not simply say there is a divine being out there who just wants your best. We talk about Jesus Christ. God has reconciled us through Jesus Christ. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, Christ being held out as the only way to the Father is essential if a church is going to be useful. Paul Washer has said that you could make Christianity the most accepted religion in the world by simply changing one article from Christ is the way to Christ is a way to God. That's all you need to do. One article. From what I remember, I could be getting some of the details wrong, but what what I remember, the church father Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, refused to sacrifice to Caesar. And they said, Polycarp, you we will kill you. You will die unless you do one sacrifice, and we're not even asking for a big thing. We're asking for a pinch of salt one pinch of salt. And he said, no, I have followed God this long. How can I deny him? And they burned him at the stake. That is the kind of faithfulness that I want in my, in my own heart, in my mind, in my life. Now when it comes to Christ. I'm not pulling any punches. And nor, we're not pulling any punches in this church. The Muhammad is not the way. There is not another opportunity. There is Christ in him, crucified, risen again. And now Christ is saying through the preaching of the gospel, Behold, I've set before you life and death. Choose life. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Not in some ambiguous God, but the God has, who has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. On the street fair, I was talking to a young lady, and she said, well, we're Catholic. I said, hmm, you know? And she, she could tell I was uncomfortable with that. And she said, well, what's the difference between Catholicism? I said, Catholicism... There are other mediators between God and man. From what I understand, you have to repent to a priest. It's the priest who must offer the the sacrifice of Christ. and, And salvation belongs in the church. But that's not what the apostolic proclamation is. It is, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus.